Science is all important. And even materialist science, what they are discovering is very important. But then where are they going once they get there? The role of science is to produce wisdom, which is bliss. And people find it in themselves. And when they do, then their intelligence increases and their compassion increases. And the root of compassion is wisdom. And every scientist should be well-trained as a philosopher, actually. So the science people who learn about meditating are all important. A little bit of calming their mind down, noticing what's going on within the mind is good because they'll find their common sense. Welcome to Mind and Life. I'm Wendy Hasenkamp. My guest today is Buddhist scholar and author Bob Thurman. Bob is one of the foremost scholars in the world on Tibetan Buddhism, and he played a major role in bringing Buddhism to America. He's a professor emeritus of religion at Columbia University, a longtime friend of the Dalai Lama, as we'll hear in this conversation. And he co-founded Tibet House U.S., a nonprofit dedicated to the preservation and renaissance of Tibetan civilization. I chatted with Bob last fall about his latest book, Wisdom is Bliss, and we covered lots of other interesting territory as well. We start with his own story and how he got interested in Buddhism and ended up traveling to India and then befriending the Dalai Lama. Then Bob dives into some links between Buddhism and science and explains why he thinks of Buddhism as only one-sixth religion. He reflects on enlightenment and emptiness, problems with scientific materialism, and shares some interesting details from the story of the Buddha's life. Then we get into Bob's latest book, which is a really accessible tour of many aspects of Buddhist philosophy and how they can impact your life. He explains the four friendly fun facts, which is his version of the Four Noble Truths. And we talk about realistic versus right approaches on the contemplative path. Bob shares about Buddhist ethics, practices to push against essentialism, the key role of compassion in enlightenment, and how he thinks about reincarnation and continuation of consciousness. We wrap with Bob's reflections on the role of science in the contemplative space, and stick around till the end to hear Bob's parting fun fact. If you know Bob or his work, you know you'll be in for a bit of a wild ride here. I love Bob's energy and humor, and his depth of knowledge on these topics is amazing. You can tell we're only scratching the surface in this conversation. And there's lots more in the show notes, including a link to Bob's own podcast, which is subtitled, Buddhas Have More Fun. I also need to mention that we've reached the end of yet another season of this show. We'll be off for a couple of months making new episodes, and we look forward to being back in your feeds in September. In the meantime, stay tuned to the Mind and Life Institute newsletter and social media for lots more at the intersection of science and contemplative wisdom. Okay, I really hope you enjoy this chat. I think you will. It's my great pleasure to share with you, Bob Thurman. I'm joined today by Bob Thurman. Bob, thanks so much for being here. Oh, thank you, Wendy. It's very nice to be with you. So I'm really excited to talk to you about your, your new book, Wisdom is Bliss. But um, I'd love to start first with a little bit of your personal story. So could you share how you came to be interested in Buddhism originally? Yes. Well, I was interested in Buddhism originally because 
I was told by two sides in my youthful education at St. Bernard's School in New York, which was like an English-type school, Latin in the third grade. Mm. I wish they'd done Greek in the third grade, although I would have howled had it happened. And uh, then Exeter and so on. And um, up to that point, and I sort of discovered Buddhism in high school at Exeter. And the reason I liked it is because the religious people insisted I believe in God, which I didn't from youth. And I said, it makes no sense to me. And um, because a compassionate, if you said big compassion thing, and, you know, loving God did all this. And then his son is hanging up there every day in the church, mm. which I don't really enjoy seeing. And I'm sure he didn't enjoy. So I, I didn't I think he was a bad dad, A and B. Um, and yet you say he's omnipotent. And then it makes no sense to me. And so why do you say that? Well, because you can't know anything else, you know, and you, it doesn't have to make sense to you. It makes sense to him. And I said, well, if, if I'm ignorant, I presume you're ignorant, too because none of us humans can understand anything. He said, that's right. I said, well, then why are you telling me something like this, such definite authority? From little, I said, and I always said, don't you know the universe is infinite? Is what I always used to say. I don't know why. Hmm. Former life, I think. And then, therefore, you, anything, go, anything is possible. So you can't just say that. When you, say, when you admit you don't really know, what are you, who are you repeating? What are you saying? So that I didn't like. And then on the science side, which I did like, and actually I was horribly good at math. <laughs> I just, I aced every math thing, like it was just effortlessly. And I hated it. I wanted to be a poet and a playwright and all this. I didn't want math, but that's the one thing I was really good at. <laughs> but then the scientists, on the other hand, they say, yeah, you should be rational and you study this here and that. But you know, like Socrates, the more you know, the more you don't know. And I didn't like that either. So how do you, if you don't know, and if everybody doesn't know, why are they saying something that they think is really, you have to listen to? So Buddhism, I learned from the beginning when I first noticed it, oh, you're supposed to experience nirvana. Oh, you're supposed to know the nature of reality. I sort of got that, although I got, I made it a little bit wrong, what the reality was when I was early on. I was thinking it was nirvana was somewhere else, mm. which I didn't mind. Because I saw the mess in the world, actually. Although I was also pretty happy. I was an eight-letter man at Exeter, lacrosse, pounding people over the head and so on, and, uh, and hockey and things like that. But on the other hand, I, I didn't think that the American triumphalism that I was indu inducted into in such schools, and including then later Harvard, uh, was going to succeed, actually. Mm. It looked wrong to me, you know. So, and, and at the senior year in high school with a Mexican friend on a dare, I left school to join as a mercenary Fidel Castro's revolution mm. at the age of 17, like an idiot. And luckily for me, they rejected me. <laughs> they rejected us both. And uh, in fact, they had a good laugh because I was 6'3 and quite skinny. And my friend was 5'3 and was heavier than me, quite rotund. So they said, oh, Don Quixote and Sancho Panza are coming to save the revolution. Oh, my gosh. And I didn't even know they were communists. You know, I, I thought he was a poet, you know what I mean? I was so ignorant. And, uh, but luckily, I would have been killed, I'm sure, if I had joined. They, that's what they told me. Mm. So then I went back and went on and came, went to Harvard and so on. But then I was very attracted to Buddhism. And, but on the other hand, it was too track, you know, because of American culture, you know, elite, blah, blah, impoverished gentry in my family. I wasn't wealthy. Family wasn't wealthy, but they had been. And um, so I had to go to those schools and so on. So 
I would have maybe freaked out at 40 at whatever I was in economics or whatever. But luckily, although very unluckily, I thought at the time I lost the left eye mm. in, a, in a, a garage accident, a completely foolish thing. But that gave me a midlife crisis at 20. Uh-huh. And that's the right age to have it. <laughs> Because by that time, I was a junior in Harvard, approaching my senior year, but I didn't really take it seriously. In fact, it dropped out again and went to India this time because I was said, I, I told my wife at the time, I was married very young. I told my wife, let's go to India and, uh, and we've got to obtain enlightenment in this life. We can't just run around like with a college degree and this and that. And she freaked out. So, you know, we broke up, et cetera. She, she wasn't into it. So then I could identify with Shakyamuni. I left my wife and et you know, and went off to conquer the inner devil, you know, the inner, inner uh, obstruction. And, um, and it was so lucky for me. Then I met the Tibetans, you know, eventually after hiking to India before there were hippies. Mm-hmm. There were no hippies. I was the first. And so most of the people in the Muslim world, as I hiked through there in Asia, they thought I was a German, you know, Wandervogel, because they, they'd never seen an American impoverished and begging for lunch, you know. And um, but I was trying to do it the real way, you know. And um, they were awfully nice to me, actually, uh, the people were. And uh, then I met the Tibetans and then this and that. And then, uh, I, you know, I studied for a year or two and then I had to be a monk. But my old Mongolian, my original teacher said, no, you're not going to be a monk. Long term, that's not your karma. I wouldn't listen. He then took me to Dalai Lama to make me a monk. But he told Dalai Lama, the naughty man, don't make him a monk. He's very <laughs> sincere. He already speaks Tibetan. By that time, I was fluent in Tibetan from living with him in New Jersey. Mm. And, um, uh, but, but he, and he's very sincere, and he loves the Dharma, blah, blah. But he, he, he's, he's not going to be able to stay a monk. It's karma. And his whole, but, you know, you're the Dalai Lama. You decide. I'm not an old Mongolian. And, um, and then His Holiness hesitated because of what he was told. But then we got to be so close. And uh, in a way, I was his first mind in life, but a very poor version because, you know, whatever I gleaned at Harvard and Exeter and these places, he was getting me to download, you know. Uh-huh. And he, even t- he didn't teach me uh, directly. He would have me study with his teachers because we were close in age, you know, uh, four or five years different, five, six years different. And um, so I, we had this one. I didn't even know how wonderful they were to have that time with him and, and make up all kinds of words for scientific terms and and the ego and whatever it was, and that, while I was learning from the senior people as well, so that was wonderful. Three, oh two, a few years of studying Buddhism, and then, to, sure enough, when eventually, when I came back to America as a monk, a civil rights movement, Vietnam War protests, the whole thing, all my peers, you know, out there struggling against the bad guys, and um, me being drawn into it, and then the Mongolian guy back at the original monastery in New Jersey where I started. He was saying, you can't go out and march like a Vietnamese monk Hmm. in these protests and things from here because we are not really well established in this country. And you either stay here or you have to live somewhere else. And then I realized there's no real monastery. That was a very ethnic Mongolian community, Tibetan monastery. But uh, it it wasn't really for Americans, you know, and I wasn't really suited to be a local priest for for the Mongolian. So in a way, the sociological insight of my original teacher prevailed. And I reluctantly resigned my robes. And then I became a Western seeker, which, which is um, in the university. You know, I, I became a seeker of truth and of reality at a university. 
so I could keep studying and then be a teacher. So I went back to Harvard, and then I got a PhD, and then I got a job. And in the in the in that process, once a layperson, I fell in love with a wonderful woman who became my third big guru, major guru. After the Mongolian guy and His Holiness, she became my main guru. Actually, <laughs> learned a lot from her. Still, although she hasn't really accepted me as a graduate yet, <laughs> still, she doesn't consider. She says, she says that she's Swedish, and she says that men come out of adolescence at around sixty or seventy. <laughs> <laughs> and then they could mature by 80 or 90. <laughs> so I have another maybe decade if I can survive. Actually, His Holiness ordered me to live to 104. Oh. And uh, which means I'll make it to Ray Kurzweil's singularity. <laughs> That's 24 more years because I'm just 80 now. Right. So if I can make it to the singularity, then I can be a robot maybe and keep, keep studying Buddhism as a robot. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my story. You know? Fantastic. And uh, I've known his holiness for 57 years, and I loved the guy. And actually, in a way, for the first decade or two, I had other older teachers, and he himself was studying with, you know, and we were more like debate partners or something, mm. a little bit, a little bit. And I did, re I deeply respected him, although in a way, I, when I was a monk, I was really annoying, because I said, look, you're a monk, why are you running the country? <laughs> you should resign from all that, and then naturally everything will happen because people will love you so much, and just as you'll be a great guru and whatever, you know. And I, I was really imagine insufferable uh, being purist like that. Terrible. <laughs> Lucky for them, I didn't remain a monk, you know. Really. <laughs> so anyway, it's been wonderful, and you know, I love mind and life because I'm really more like in my book. You'll see that uh, I'm in how Buddha was the scientist. How Buddha was an educator, not really a prophet. And of course, Max Weber and all the great sociologists of religion and people like that, they they always can't quite fit Buddhism in because there's no God, you know. There's no it's not belief. I think even they translated noble truths as truths because they were thinking this is a religion, they gotta have a credo, something they believe in. But the four noble truths, or the four, as I call them, friendly facts are not to be believed in. They are to be dealt with in different ways, like they are to be acknowledged, the first one, to be understood, the second one, to be experienced and realized, the third one, and to be traveled on and practiced, the fourth one. So the belief is not actually that mm. necessarily the big thing. So therefore, it doesn't fit in modern social scientific definitions of religion. Buddhism really doesn't fit, except for the laity in, in, in illiterate, old-fashioned societies where they just believe that Whatever Buddha and the monks are doing is good, and then they just support it out of faith. Mm -hmm. And they just have faith. They don't have really a reason for that, except that they're nice people. So, uh, But they, and on the other hand, they're not encouraged, however, to have blind faith. Mm -hmm. And they are not encouraged into idolatry, as Westerners and Muslims thought when they saw all the Buddhist statues. And they're not. They know perfectly well it's just a statue. It's like a photo in your wallet of your daughter or something. It's not the daughter. You know, They know that. So they're not doing idolatry. But on a way, you could say they're a little bit... His Holiness agrees with me. He said one-sixth, maybe. We agreed. We kind of came to an agreement. Maybe it's one-sixth religion, Buddhism. <laughs> How did you figure that out? Well, because if you take Buddhism uh, in what is known as practice Buddhism or realizational Buddhism, and the first one is the higher education in ethics, and then there's the higher education in mind, which is where that meditation comes in. And then there's the higher education in wisdom, which is not meditation at all. It is knowing what is reality, your own inner reality, and also external reality, material reality. They don't know, they don't 
denied the, the importance of material reality. And uh, so two out, of, two out of three are nothing to do with religion, mm. you know. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and the meditation one, you could say, if you say half of it is analytic, it's simply empowering, creating a more powerful analytic instrument for research, which is the wisdom part. So it's reinforcing the wisdom. And then you say, well, half of it is like one-pointedness into a good direction, even maybe before you fully understood what is the good direction. So, okay, there you have just a, a, a fixation of the mind on something, hopefully good. And that you could say is religious in a mm. sense that it doesn't require right away experience, you know, but it will lead to, but it doesn't require it. So that's the one sixth you follow. You take the two, you divide one of the thirds, the meditation part, and you use the shamatha part of that. And you say uh, the shamatha and also the thematic part where you're just inculcating compassion or something which is not having to do with understanding. So the ethics is not religion. It's practical, you know, and the um, wisdom is science. Yeah. Totally. And therefore, in that light, emptiness, the famous emptiness, is not a mystical thing. What emptiness really means is relativity. Everything is interconnected. Mm. That's what it really means. And what is empty is all of these humanoid projected false absolutes into everything, you know, like God is the absolute or this dogma is the absolute or that dogma is the absolute or what materialists have fallen into without realizing it is nothing is the absolute or nothingness is the absolute, where they're going to go when they die, they're going to join that absolute. And, and that, you know, because the human tendency to project absolutes stemming from the human sickness from Buddha's psychological analysis of thinking that the self is a fixed absolute thing and, and therefore its relations to things is problematic. So the idea of the absolute soul or mind and Buddhism doesn't really even deny either soul or mind, but just an absolute one is mm -hmm. the only thing it denies. So that's what everything is empty of, an absolute core reality projected from the human who thinks they're absolute. You know, like me, 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 like we've seen a few of them lately in the news. <laughs> so that, that's, uh, that, that's always was my view. So I therefore love mind and life. <laughs> and also, although I might be critical of materialism, uh, scientific materialism. I love scientific materialists, and I just wish they could be released from that dogma which has trapped them, mm. I feel. But on the other hand, I know that they needed that dogma for about 300 years to escape from all those horrible inquisitions mm. and, and Protestant, Puritan, Orthodox, fanatic theologians and people like that, you know, to have the Western Enlightenment. Yeah. But that Enlightenment fits into the Buddhist one, in my opinion. I know that some of my fellow translators nowadays are freaking me out because they don't like the word enlightenment. They insist on, oh, everything's awakening. Hmm. They're only going to say awakening, awakening, awakening. And that's not correct. That's only half of enlightenment. And the other half is, is expanding knowledge over every relational thing in order to be able to help people effectively. And that's just like what the Western Enlightenment was trying to do, observing nature and seeing it as a reality, even though it's with some illusory elements, but uh, trying to rearrange it in the best possible way for everybody else. You know?
So this is interesting. Um, it's making me think again, in your book, you present the Buddha as a scientist, right? And you talk a lot about science. I would love to hear more about, uh, is, is that kind of where you were just talking about in terms of investigating? Yeah, so, so therefore, that's a physical discovery, the discovery of total relativity. You know, Einstein even remains, there was a kind of absolute, which is the speed of light, because at that point, mass becomes infinite, which is to say light is everywhere. So then nothing can exist beyond that. And so that makes an absolute sort of boundary to his relativized world, universe, which he could never come up with a grand unified theory about, right? He couldn't bring gravity into it. And it was brilliant and wonderful as he was. He was totally great, but he was constrained by materialism because, of course, and then he, had, he was reduced to leaving loose ends like spooky action at a distance. Mm -hmm. When those two atoms, you know, atomic particles suddenly spin suddenly and they seem to be affecting each other at an inconceivably huge separation and there's no way of explaining it because you, the speed of connecting is not there, it's instantaneous. Yeah. And whereas mind wouldn't have that problem, although, you know, because mind can instantaneously traverse distances and so forth, supposedly. And actually, in a way, mind is physical although His Holiness never wants to let the materialists know. Buddhist philosophy is so truly paparian in Buddhist science that it never wants to say, or the highest level of it, that it's all mind. Some people, well, you th if you listen to some Buddhist teachers, you would, oh yeah, it's all mind. It's all mind. No, that's, they won't agree with that. But they say it's great for a certain moment in your progress. Mm -hmm. You know, you should stick with its own mind if it keeps you on the ball and, and ethical and, you know, connected to causation of a certain kind. But, uh, but ultimately, if you take either mind or matter, where it's not the opposite of the other, since all the meaning in language is relational and dualistic, then it has no meaning, mm, you know? Mm -hmm. So if you say it's all matter, then matter doesn't mean anything. It's just a matter of subtlety. If you say it's all mind, then mind doesn't mean anything because mind is practically material <laughs> in some safe cases, if you follow me. Mm -hmm. So that's the Prasangika one, which is really more alert to using the dualism in the illusory level of the world where people are caught suffering uh, to the maximum effect non-dualistically which sounds paradoxical, and it is paradoxical, but it's not unencompassable, you know, it's understandable, actually. So therefore, for example, karma, Buddha is celebrated, and the one mantra that's like this epitome of Buddhism, you know, of all those things that arise from causes, the realized one uh, says what are those causes, and also how to interfere with them, or how to terminate them. Mm. And that is the teaching of the great vacationer, I call it. People usually translate the great ascetic because he left a household life, you know, his family and kingdom and throne and everything. But actually, he was having more fun <laughs> as a, without the property and without the whole thing, actually. In other words, he was more fulfilled and more blissful. The, the, the household is a kind of uh, job. I, I've always actually wondered that. Can I ask you, you know, the Buddha left his family life and yes. all that. Yes. So was he like walking out on his responsibilities? You know? Well, yes. Depending on how you define them. Yes. His father said to him, you can't do that. It actually locked him up because he said, your duty is to be a king and so forth. And he said, well, Buddha debated his father and he said, Siddhartha did. And he said, well, my why is it my duty to be a king? Why are you a king? 
asked his father, well, you know, you protect people and, you know, see to their prosperity and all this. He said, okay, health, education, and welfare. I agree. But actually, I noticed that people get sick anyway. They die. They grow old. And that really bothers them. And I think I can do something about their true problems, not some surface thing of fighting some war, being commander in chief. And so I'm going to serve them at a deeper level. I'm confident I can, he said. And the dad, of course, didn't believe that. He didn't know what was a Buddha. He wasn't, there wasn't one lately around. And so he locked him up and then he escaped, right? And then, then he comes back and then his wife becomes enlightened. His foster mother becomes enlightened. Even his father becomes an arhat. So it's, you know, what they call an arhat. They don't become Buddhas right away, but they all become much happier than they were, you know, just whatever it was in the household. And he doesn't have to wage war on people and so forth. There are some wars that go on around him, which he can't stop. But maybe he had a plan long term. You know, maybe, maybe we reach a point now on the planet and his planet that he took responsibility for. He also didn't leave. Pari-nirvana doesn't mean final nirvana as they translate it. Pari only means total, thorough nirvana. So thorough nirvana means being everywhere present in every subatomic molecule, every cell of the, of the, of the universe, of, and all, one empathetically one with every being, and therefore automatically helping them out of their suffering. Sort of like God, actually, except no creator, didn't create it, didn't create their problems, and therefore is the maximum help for them. Is that, well, that's the Mahayana vision, you mm-hmm. know? and I hope it's true. And I'm still not absolutely sure, of course. I could be crazy, and they all could have been crazy all these thousands of years, but I don't think so. So that way, he was doing a higher duty, you know. And the typical example, sorry, I love, is when he came back at some point to his uh, own nation and was teaching everyone, and they were all loving it, you know, Ruining their military, actually. He'd already been ruining, because the father kept sending soldiers, young fellow Kshatriyas, to persuade him to come mm. back for many times. And then they'd always join up with him, because it, it was such a great vibe, you know, internal openness and blissfulness. Right. And, um, and they, they wouldn't come back, you know, kept losing them. So then more was happening when he came back. But the one person who didn't go to hear him was his ex-wife. Mm. She didn't go. And actually, when he left, even, she complained, not that he left. She didn't take me with him. Mm. She was ready to dump the kid, too, on all the many foster mothers and grandmothers and whatever it was, to go with him. We're like, I'm a secret lineman. What is this crap? You know, mm-hmm. I always think, actually, secretly, she's really the one who told him, because otherwise it's too stupid. He didn't know about being sick or growing old. Do you know what I mean? That's really too dumb. He wasn't that dumb. He was super smart. But I think she made him take a look at the seamy side, past the Potemkin village the father had him living in. I'm sure of it, you know, because women always know what is going on outside the, the door, you know, and in and, and the back room and everywhere. They know everything. Men are like, you know, charging off someplace all the time, you know. <laughs> That's the problem of them. Okay. So, so anyway, she, she wouldn't come. And fine. And she wouldn't let her son, Rahula, come. And he was getting more and more frustrated. Everybody loves dad. He's teaching the great thing. I don't want to go. I want to go into his bugging. He goes, no, you can't go see your father. So finally, he said, look, mom, I'm going. You can't stop me. I got to go see my dad. He's a great teacher. I want to learn what he wants to say. She said, okay, all right, I'll give you permission, she said. But on one condition, ask him for your inheritance. You promise me. All right, mom, I'll do that. 
course, he was a beggar. Right. You know, he was right. a big show, you know, a mendicant, someone who has to get begged their lunch, only lunch, free lunch, no free dinner, no breakfast, just lunch. And uh, so then he goes and he has a great time listening to Buddha. Buddha's teaching something really, and he's just mind, his doors are opening in his mind, like wonderful. And then to end, people are leaving and he sort of goes up, says, Shakyamuni, uh, sir, uh, dad. You know, you're my dad. Uh, oh, great. Oh, Rahula. He says, and he says, he says um, I'm so, I apologize for this. I don't mean to be rude, but mom insisted. I promised mom I would ask you, can I have my inheritance, please? And so then Buddha said, you want your inheritance? Yes, dad. And then he says, ehibiku, come here, mendicant. And they, and they, and they, of course, some deities or spirits like shaved him and changed his clothes. And they were, but then when he came into the shadow of the Buddha, you know, he came to where the sun was, didn't hit him anymore. It was in the shadow of the Buddha. He did attain nirvana. He became an arhat because he because he had that sort of karma. You know, how why he chose them as a parent. You know, and so on. And so then Buddha says, "How is that for an inheritance?" <laughs> and so then he. Then they had to inform the mom. So then Buddha went to see the mom, you know, who lost a, lost a layman son mm -hmm. for a happy nirvanized, nirvanic son. And, um, and of course, she was herself. I mean, in the Mahayana, they see them all as kind of already bodhisattvas who came with Buddha to enact this story, you know, in the, in the autobiography of the Buddha, which is the Mahayana Sutra, called the Lalita Vistara, literally means the greatest show on earth, like a circus. So, you know, she also became an arhat. So, in your book, I, I love how you, you present the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism, and that's a topic that comes up from time to time on the show, but I don't think we've actually ever gone through them on this show. So I love how you approach them because you call them the four friendly fun facts That's right. <laughs> instead of the four noble That's truths. Right. So can you describe um, why you call them that? And then maybe yes. we can go through them. Exactly, exactly. Well, I call them the four friendly facts because a friendly person is someone who empathizes with you. That is to say, they have some degree of alt empathy and therefore altruism because they see your perspective in things. You know, they're not just only in their own shoes all the time. They put themselves in your shoes, see things from your point of view. Okay, so that's automatically that's a friendly person, and that's what he meant by noble mm. in, in the ancient time. He was changing from a class because he was shattering the class system, actually, or he was putting holes in it. I call him the Swiss cheesification of the monastic society, creating holes for people to have mobility other than by war. You know, I see, and uh, that's what his job was. He thought, you know, as to help people. So that, that's the friendly, and then the fact is challenging the fact that truth you know, can be a reality, but it can also be a proposition about reality. And so then religions have credos and dogmas and unquestionable truths that you have to believe in, whether they make sense to you or not. And so I think that's why that, that word has that ambiguity. So in fact, I think is more, more like it, because it really it's a medical diagnosis is what it is. Buddha looks at the human beings 
and he sees them as having a certain dis-ease or uneasiness, as someone I know translates it. They're all kind of uneasy for, some, for this reason that they're wired to think that their own drive of existence is absolute. That's their absolute, mm. you know. And, and then they have a dualistic binary language. So absolute is the opposite of relative. So it's the real important ultimate thing, you know, the absolute. And so he, he noticed that. So this is his prescription. So um, and that's the hardest one is the first one, his, his noticing of the symptom, which is that we suffer. Mm. And what's fun about that, you know, Sharon Salzberg asked me, for example, and, but then I could just point to her own book on faith, if you ever read it, you realize that one of the things that attracted her to Buddhism was she had suffered a lot as a child, very difficult family situation, and et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and she was delighted that it was normal that you should suffer. It made her happy to feel, well, I'm not the only one who's suffering here. Everyone is. Right. That was a fun fact for her, to discover that that was normal for her state and that that could be corrected. That made it fun. Mm. And, um, but it's not fun, you see... It's not a fact for a self-centered person who keeps thinking, well, I didn't enjoy this that much because it ended, you know, this pleasure that I had. And also, it isn't as good as the one that could be if I was in another circumstance, if I was a famous person, if I was a billionaire, if I had 10 wives instead of one, if I had or husbands instead of whatever, you know, all kinds of things. And the really self-centered person who's wrapped around their absolute really strongly never enjoys anything, but they think they're going to. Mm. When I'm president, then I'll be really happy. You know? Ha! Give me a break. Then the hair turns gray in a week, you know, if they're yeah, not dying. Yeah. You know? If they have any real hair. You know? Yeah. That made me think of some uh, a line in your book that I just loved. Um, that You said it, it, something like, isn't it funny how everybody um, is anxious, but they feel safe being miserable? Yes. Yeah. Well, that's me. Protestant ethic, you know. Presbyterian, supposed to be. I mean, never, I never, my mom even told me when I became a Buddhist monk for a while, my mom told me, oh, I should have known when we had took you to be christened, you kicked up such a fuss in that Presbyterian church. You know, the Presbyterians, they don't like ritual, right? So they have a little tiny dish there, you know, like an urn, a thing like a, with little legs yeah. with, with water in it. And I kicked it over and drenched <laughs> the priest. And, uh, and then he kind of wrung out a few drops of, you know, a bunch of flailing feet because I was having a fit for some reason, she said. So that was your saying. But on the other hand, I consider myself baptized many times. I love Jesus. I think he's Buddha, actually. Mm. We think Jesus is a Buddha and maybe misunderstood a little bit by some more warlike people who, according to some mystic that I know, cries when they make war in his name, like onward Christian soldiers, you know, because he taught the Beatitudes, you know, yeah. which is the Dharma, you know, like a nonviolence, you know. But anyway, so that's the first friendly fun fact is if you're self-centered and very stuck on your, in, in the misknowing and thinking yourself the absolute and infinite numbers of other beings don't agree with you that you're the absolute, it's very frustrating. And your own body doesn't agree, like you have a little pleasure in some way, but then it ends. And then you compare it to what you imagine, and then you, it's no good. So worldly happiness or, or ignorant happiness being the suffering of change, because mm -hmm. it doesn't last, right? Okay, so that's the first one. Then the second one is the diagnosis. Why is it like that? Well, 
It's like that because you misknow. It's not just that you don't know, it's that you misknow because you think, I'm the one. You know, like Neil, I'm the one. I'm the absolute. And then nobody agrees except mom temporarily feeds you milk at the breast. And after that, forget about it. So the analysis is you're not in the real world. So you have to understand why that is so, and you have to work on replacing it. And then comes the prognosis. Well, if you do, if you substitute wisdom for misknowing or misknowledge, ignorance, but more actively misknowledge, if you substitute wisdom, you're going to be in nirvana. All your suffering will cease. And then the misund big misunderstanding of that prognosis is you have to quit life for that to happen. Mm. But, and he even allows that to some people, the dualistic Buddhists, what we call, you know, because they can't imagine being totally blissful in the midst of it all, mm -hmm. in the thick of it, still in the thick of it for the sake of others. They can't imagine that. So then, oh, I don't believe that. That's oh, hopeless. And then they become very disillusioned. And they had, there's no hope for them. The, the, but, but, so he let them think that. But he just was very careful not to make it too clear. Mm -hmm. You know, like he, when they would ask, what happens to me after nirvana? Well, you just attain it, you'll find out. <laughs> don't, don't speculate. In other words, he wouldn't quite say that. So then that's the prognosis, is human being, human, the human form. And this relates to his own theory of evolution, his own Darwinian theory, which was not an ordinary theory in India at that time, mm. as I will explain to you. And his theory... The human life form is the ideal life form to really realize that nirvana because gods can, are smarter, some of them, and they, they were humans and they, they did really good things and they became gods. But the problem with them becomes then they get very complacent because they have very long lives. They have a lot of worldly pleasure, like really extreme in the way they describe it and uh, long lives and they think they're going to be like that forever and it's just so cool and like... Why bother? They sort of maybe know it's everything is relative, you know, but they but they don't want to think about it until it's too late, you know. And whereas the human has that same level of intelligence enough to investigate reality and is vulnerable and you know knows that they uh, sees the the harsher ways of living, you know, then doesn't want to fall back into them. So it's ideal, you know. So then the fourth noble truth is the therapy, and it's the three higher educations. And they are higher education. They are not just trainings. You know, everybody insists on translating them trainings, mm. three higher trainings. Because why do they do that? Because they have their PhDs and they have their BAs and their MAs and they think of themselves as highly educated and they're still totally miserable. <laughs> and they're just freaked out. And they don't know what's going on still. So then they think education is useless. Let's meditate. And then, you know, all that education didn't do me that good. Well, there's the, maybe that's the Western arrogance. You know? mm -hmm. and if our education didn't do it, nobody's did. Well, I'm sorry. Europe and China and Korea and also East Asia and Europe were way backward compared to Persia and India, especially India. You know, they were the richer areas of Eurasia, you know. So anyway, so, so that's the four friendly facts. And they're all fun because it's fun to know what's causing your problem. It's fun to realize that the problem is normal. You know, you just didn't, you weren't taught, you didn't know, you didn't understand. It's fun to be encouraged that you can understand and that you, when you can, that really has a great benefit to you. And then on top of that, that the non-dual version of it, the more, little more, what we would think of as a little more advanced, 
that you can keep that nirvana and be totally engaged with other beings, all your beloved ones, and by intensifying your memory, by developing much higher intelligence, you are aware of your former life interrelations with all of them. Everybody was your mom. Everybody was your beloved. They were your enemies too, but why harp on that? Do you know? And uh, of course, it's because the beginninglessness of the illusory relative life. And uh, so you kind of love all of them, mm. you know, and it's it's ever and you effortlessly feel that. And what is love? What makes you able to love them and be compassionate for them is that you feel so good, and in, in the release of nirvana, you feel so ecstatic, and you see that they have that potential, and even somewhere deep inside they do feel it. Even I would say the essence of of uh, Ayurveda and all Indian medicine, and particularly the Buddhist version of Ayurveda. People's health is their inner bliss. Mm. That is their health. That's what holds the cells together. That's what gives them strength. And any party pooper, like a tumor or something, it's, they're not going to tolerate it. No, no, get out. You go back and be nice. You know, be fit into our community. You know, and then when they get really unhappy and weird and they lose complete track of their inner bliss, then they kind of become vulnerable to that. Mm. In a way, in some you know deep level core way. I mean, not of course we live in a soup of toxicity of our distorted industrial confusion. You yeah, know? we do. So the the body, this is a miracle that we do so well, actually, even in the middle of it all. You know. you were um, speaking about the kind of changing your understanding through the three educations. Um, yes. And in, right. in your book, you talk about um, the first one as having, well, first of all, you, you call them realistic instead of what's normally right. normally translated as the right way. I got it from Alan Wallace. I give Alan Wallace the attribution. Yeah. I saw that in some book he wrote. But then he he removed himself. He doesn't use them anymore. He goes back to right and wrong. Uh, but he did use it in some book. I don't remember which one. But that oh, when I saw that, Alan got it there, and then and then it grew on me more and more. And then I really think that's that's the best. Yeah, I love removing the kind of right and wrong ideas of it. But right anyway. Um, so the first is a uh, is realistic worldview. Yeah. And you reflect in your book how you know the 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 later ones are more about meditation and transforming the mind and how. You kind of wanted to like just do that right away and jump into that. That's right. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, you know, I was uh, 21 years old by then, and I missed my friends, and I missed my ex, you know, and I missed my daughter, and I missed things. And then the Vietnam War, and the, you know, the racists were killing the civil rights merchants, beating them up, you know, in the mid-60s. So, you know, the idea that there was this place of bliss to be found... <laughs> And that, you know, the four immeasurables, you know, love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. And that you sort of could leave that old body behind with all its worries and woes. And, uh, and that it sort of popped, it seemed effortless to me, and I just wanted to go there. And he just kept interrupting me, my early teacher, who was so, so he clearly was clairvoyant. He would catch me at three in the morning in my own bedroom in the little monastery that we built there. And... Um, He'd knock on the door or just open it and say, let's grab some yogurt. Why aren't you sleeping? 
I maybe would run away and go in the woods someplace a little bit, and he'd find me, and he'd pretend he was walking the dog at three in the morning. Huh. And he'd find me and say, what are you doing over here? The people, will, laborers will think we're crazy, and you'll be arrested, and you'll think we're, everyone in the monastery is mad. You're out in the middle of the night. Whenever I would get just at that point almost of slipping out into the immeasurable, you know, immense love vibe and going into the form realm, and sublimating that bliss, you know, of being a monk. Because I lived as a monk before I was a monk. Mm -hmm. And that's why I wanted to have robes and actually have it sort of mm. sealed, you know. And uh, for, for a few years after I left my family, you know. And um, he would just interrupt that. And, oh, no, and I would get so upset. And then even after I became a monk and came back from India at some point, temporarily I was going to go back to, I was going to go back to India when I could figure out how to finance it. And uh, he would still do that. And he even came and he said, he came, the one I remember that I tell us a story. I don't know if I was a monk and I was uh, three in the morning with a candle in the temple, quietly meditating. And he comes in, turns on the lights and he says, what are you doing? And I said, what do you mean? I do? Of course, I'm meditating. I'm a Buddhist monk. He says, oh, why are you meditating? I said, well, I want to attain enlightenment. Of course. He says, oh, you can't attain enlightenment. You're an American. He says. <laughs> <laughs> so then I said, well, I don't care if I'm an American by birth. I said, I totally know about former future life. I'm totally into it. I totally know about the mind. He says, no, no, no. He said, what gets enlightened is the mind. He says, and you guys grow up and you are, in, you are conditioned to think there's no such thing. You're just this biological thing. I mean, he didn't add that second word. You said you're just, you don't have one. Mm. So therefore you can't become enlightened. And that, no, I argued that's not me, blah, blah, blah. Went on for weeks, I argued that argument again. And then finally I kind of did realize that I too, it's like, you know, I don't believe so-and-so bended the fork. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? I don't, you know, because I, that's my, that's our conditioning. We grew up, that's the consensus reality around us. You know, we don't believe in miracles, you know, right. we don't. And uh, I'm almost now, 50 years later, 60 years later, I'm almost getting to where I can, I'm open-minded. Theoretically, I was always open-minded to a miracle, but on a visceral level, I never mm. really believed in one. I did not. So I did not believe in the, de the definition of a Buddha's, the immense, and then nowadays I would call it theistic uh, nature of a Buddha, hmm. which is this Dharmakaya body, body of all reality. Imagine that if you suddenly felt you were the house, the wall behind you, the painting, me, everybody you know, everybody in Charlottesville, everybody in America, everybody on every and other planets as well. And you are this vast cloud of, of awareness. And you totally knew whatever. And, and the good part, you saw everybody had a core awareness of relativity and therefore causation. And therefore, they only held it together because there was this... It's sort of invisible to their normal being, a feeling of well-being in that relativity, a feeling of that, that, that all is possible somewhere deep in them. And, and, uh, but not as a static thing, but just that was the way of the, that was the nature of the interrelatedness because the Buddhas are in every one of us, in other words. Is that it's like the pantheistic heresy, you know, from a Western theological point of view of projecting an absolute being outside of the universe. That's, so that's considered a heresy. But, the, but the, this is a God who didn't create our problem, but is maximum of trying to help us out of it. And in the Mahayana Sutras, if you read them, you know, see the Sutras, 
you know, the, the Abhidharma is the wisdom side. You know, the organized teaching. The sutras, which are Buddha's own direct, uh, sort of the presence of the Buddha comes through the sutras from his speech and also the setting around him and so on. And then that's the meditation one. So it's like all the sutras are like guided meditations. So they kind of create a different culture in the mind if one reads them very, very extensively, as now it probably has become somewhat possible in English. But then let's go back to the ethics one, because that's where uh, evolution comes in. Mm. You know, the Buddhists are total evolutionaries or evolutionists, more radical than Darwin, because in addition to the genetic thing, there's also the individual what I would call the mental gene, the third gene, you know, with the third bunch of chromosomes that has to fit the two of the mother and father. Mm. And the third one comes from through the bardo, you know, through the between state and uh, matches that and therefore is attracted to either the male or the female, et cetera, mm. the way they explain it. Although all of their scientific explanations are purely paparian because they say there's no absolute theory you know, all theories are relative, about the relative, and therefore they're all in a context more or less valid and useful mm. for beings to understand what's happening around them. And the only one that's sort of very rigorous, you could say, is the negation of, the, of emptiness, which is, or freedom, or... What does that mean, negation? Well, when you look, if, if someone says, is there an elephant in your room? And then you look around for the elephant... Okay, and then you don't find an elephant in the room. And then you didn't find the non-elephant because there's no such thing. You just didn't find the elephant. So in other words, the negative cognition is a mind-opening mm. sort of thing because then you're, you're aware of what else is in the room. You know? You're not worried that there's an elephant in there any longer. And in a way, it's always imperfect. There could be a little mini elephant or somebody's charm bracelet with a little mini elephant. You know what I mean? It could be. But, but it's, you know, there's a sort of limit to how much you can examine. But when you do, then your mind opens from a negation. So the negation is the negation of these falsely projected absolutes, mm. not only in ourselves, but once we have it in ourselves, which is the root of it, we project it into the table, you know, like Plato. There's a tableness that is instant, an absolute form which is instantiated in the table, blah, blah, blah. There's always some sort of essential thing. And that's a human habit. It isn't necessarily just a philosophical mistake. It's a human habit. And in a way, he's describing what people do do. And uh, the modern one where they don't do that is all great. But what they didn't realize is they still have the habit and they project it into nothingness. And they think that's, in other words, if right now you and me, if we were sort of being really frank about what our mind is, whatever, we may have some other bunch of beliefs we would like to be entertaining. But we might think, well, if everything was disassembled about us, like Daniel Dennett or one of those materialists or Pinker, took every piece apart and then some quantum guy shattered even the subatomic particles and came up with some statistical probabilities about it, we would think, well, it ends up in a dark space. We sort of have a picture in our mind of being a dark space. Like we fall asleep, it's dark, mm -hmm. and we snore there. The cemeteries are called heavenly rest, you know. So we would think that's where we end up. So in a way, that's sort of our final, what we're reduced mm. to, as if it's something. So actually, that's an absolutizing of nothing, as if it were something, which is actually a bit wacky, <laughs> don't you think? <laughs> you know, like... I'm so indoctrinated myself, it took me 40 years of debating with my natural science colleagues to realize that the simple 
termination of it to open their minds to think more about it is not necessarily winning, but just opening their mind. Is which person got the Nobel Prize for discovering the nothing that awaits you at death? <laughs> who got it? Was it Carl Sagan got it? Or who? Or who came back and testified, I had the empirical experience of nothing? Who did that? Then they, at first they start calculating, thinking, and they think about some mathematician maybe who came up with some treatment of the zero. <laughs> and actually, the Indians developed the zero, right. invented it, not the not right. the Arabs, you know, the Indians. And the, and the word shunya, emptiness, is the same word for zero in Indian mathematics, by the way. And in the, and as a notation system, of course, nothing the nothing of the zero is like the point on a Cartesian graph. It has no size, so and it has a function. In conceptual reality, sure. But in reality, it's not there. It's, that point is not there in two or three or four dimensions. There's no point, just like there's no instantaneous present moment. Because the instantaneous present moment has no duration. So there's no now to be here, now in, in fact. you know. So anyway, and that's a negation. And that one, if pursued analytically with anything that... Because what, what our mind will do is anything we entertain in the mind... We'll see it as if it was a substantially real thing, right? You know, made of, with its own real core essence, and so that's when then the shamatha comes and empowers the vipassana, and the vipassana drills down into that with the diamond drill, as they say, and it dil- drills into it, and then it just goes apart, and it doesn't withstand analysis, and then there's it's because it's a negation, and then the last danger. Because then there's a feeling of release when, when that thing is not there, especially when you're going inward to the so-called self. Right, that's what I wanted to ask yes. about. Yes, there's a feeling of release, vast space, you know, and they talk about spacing out and vast space, and Paramatma, the Hindus talk about supreme self, and Buddhists also have an expression of supreme self, supreme self of selflessness. They, they combine them too, because that also is a self, it's, it's an experience. And there's a danger of being trapped there, by, because it doesn't seem, when you achieve it, apparently, when you fully achieve it, it doesn't seem like a relational experience. It seems like you've hit the absolute, and that's what you wanted. Mm. But, in fact, there was a time before you were not there, which you forget about. But, but if you have really strong vipassana, and if you have strong realistic worldview, and what's called the royal reason of relativity, then you won't forget about it. You'll realize, since I'm experiencing this, but not in words at that stage, or you'll even, you'll be in space and, well, which is west, east, west, north, south, up, down in this space? And then the space will disappear, and the disappearance will disappear, and then who's there but Wendy Hasenkamp, (laughs) smiling happily in Charlottesville, Virginia, in her happy job talking to lots of fun people. That's a wonderful... process of um, kind of going inward with this negation countering the essentialism. Yes. So I assume that's kind of the most important or core process or realization to go through in these is is the understanding of the self as not essential? It is a very core experience. Mm -hmm. 
But the thing about it, though, is, is that it, it has that danger that I said, that then the one can absolutize, I mean, it can be sort of where the projection becomes final. Mm. You know, in other words, when it's the ultimate psychosis in a way also. It's a mystical psychosis. Of, it's just all one, and it's all me, but actually I don't feel guilty leaving everybody out because I'm everybody, mm. but they're also the same as me. They're not here either. So I'm not here and they're not here and it's all one and it's great and no more problem and we can't bump into each other because we're all not here. Mm -hmm. So even though that's a blowout experience, yes, it's still not nirvana. And, and therefore before it, that's why His Holiness, what is Buddhism? Compassion. The Bodhisattva thing is essential because that is somehow your vow and your connectedness to everybody and all your mothers and all your beloveds and your will that they also enjoy total freedom. And that vow, you could say, projects through the spaciousness and the releasedness of that, and it pushes you to probe even the feeling of freedom, and then you can become free of that freedom. It's the only thing you can have the way of putting <laughs> it. And then, then that takes you to a point sort of beyond... Uh, clear-cut, you know, yes-no binary rationality. It takes you to a place where, as F. Scott Fitzgerald said, great guru of mine, the sign of a great mind is the ability to encompass two opposing facts without crushing themselves, without collapsing one into the other, and hold them both simultaneously. So Buddha, you, you could say, Buddha is the ultimate tolerance of cognitive dissonance. Wow, yeah, how true that would be today. <laughs> it's something like that. And the cognitive dissonance is the compassion side and the connecting back with those who, who are stuck in the embodiment, you know. And so, and so then all of those statements in Buddhism of no more birth are reinterpreted meaning no more involuntary birth. You know, there, then you can create a new self, a new you. You know, you can find it. You can even go through the process of finding a, a good mom, you know, and performing what I call the ultimate Buddhist astronaut achievement, a womb shot. <laughs> <laughs> a successful womb shot and landing in a new body. Although in some, if you go in some areas, you, don't, you can also just be born by apparition, they say, you know, if you don't want to go through that process. So a lot of what you're sharing is based, you know, it kind of assumes um, this belief in reincarnation or kind of continuation of consciousness yes. between yes. bodies or lives. So um, what would you say to those who don't have that worldview? Right. Well, the first thing I would say to them is what I said before, which is who, you only go on what you know empirically and you don't, you don't push dogmas and theories that were beyond falsification or confirmation. And so we don't push former and future life mm -hmm. like that at all. If you can't confirm it, then forget about it. Like Dalai Lama says, oh, forget about it. That's not your business. That's my business. And he talks to you. He's like just really letting you off the hook or way too easy, <laughs> actually. But the point is, that's fine. You have to find it, the plausibility of it. But on the other hand, you have to put the shoe on the other foot. You have to question the implausibility of holding out a specific form of very subtle energy, which is your consciousness, which you traced all kinds of lightning bolts 
mini super subtle lightning bolts splattering around in the neurons in your brain, and you trace it, but that's all energy. And then even if it formulates itself into a cognition, which you think maybe that's not that's an illusion. Well, that's all illusion. Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe it's all illusion. But the point is, it's energy. And you have your law of thermodynamics of there's no destruction of energy. So why are you accepting this one? You have no reason to do it. You have not had an empirical experience of nothing. And you cannot have that, actually, if you think just two minutes, A, B, C. No one can experience nothing. There's no experience of nothing. There can be an experience of a simulation and a projection of a dark space. Yes, you can call that nothingness. But there's, that's not nothing. It's an experience. So since nobody discovered it, it's not really a foundation of science. It's just a dogma of materialism that you're stuck with, which was good, you know, because you escaped from your fear of hell. You know, Descartes and those guys, they didn't deal with what poor Galileo had to deal with. So the point is, you have no empirical basis of that. So you have to question it, that's one. But then two, I appreciate that you got there because you discovered so many great things by looking at the book of nature. And that's great. But you didn't find nothing among the things in the book of nature. You did not find that. You, you know, you, and, and you're pretending that you did is a new kind of dogmatism on your part. And you have a new kind of inquisition there with Asimov and Sagan and, and whatever you call it, you know, just destroying some physicists out of tenure because they think there might be a vital or Hemholtz who destroyed Goethe because of saying there's a vital principle in the universe. And so you have to bag that too. And then three, you also are wonderful and you're brave in that you feel you were very brave to be not afraid to be nothing. And you think we people and with the vast majority of humanity who expects to continue in some form, you feel they're all childish and they just want to always keep their ice cream in next life and so on and so on. Whereas actually anybody who really thinks they might have another life who believes in it like you believe in the throughway. You know, it's not a mystical thing at all. It's just the common sense of people who believe in it. And you think they're just childish. But people who believe in that are scared of that because they don't know where they're going to be and what sort of life they're going to have. You know, they might be born in some horrible state and they're scared of it. But here's the thing. Because you consider it takes courage to accept nothing, that shows that subliminally... Your deepest unconscious mind knows that continuity is the rule in nature. And nobody's scared of the darkness in the alien movie when you're walking down the dark spaceship of the alien. You're only scared of an alien that might jump out at you. So you, the fact that you're scared of nothing, whereas when your tooth is being drilled, you want insensitivity. You want anesthesia. When you're having a hard, open heart operation, you want to be knocked out. 100%. So that's no scary. That's please do it. You don't like pain. The fact that you, that means that you subliminally know for a fact, contrary to your dogma, that you can expect continuity by common sense. And as a scientist, you should not bracket common sense. Don't tell me just because particles behave weirdly that there's no, that common sense is not reliable. Common sense at the deepest level is highly reliable. Because, you know, we're t- I hope many of the people listening are scientists, and I hope they haven't freaked out already. <laughs> but anyway, think about who found nothing and you should take off. <laughs> yeah, no, kind of thinking way back to our discussion of the Buddha as a scientist. and um, Yes. And now, you know, 
talking about how science shows up today with a lot of materialism and, and all of this. Yes. And then, of course, science engaging with these worlds of meditation and the whole study of meditation from a scientific perspective. I'm just wondering what you think of as the role of science in this whole space right now. The role of science is to produce wisdom, which is bliss, which is the bliss that will save us. And people find it in themselves. And when they do, then their intelligence increases and their compassion increases and automatically. And there it because the root of the, the root of compassion is wisdom. And they and they reason, you know, and wisdom in the illusory level is reason up to a point. It, not, it doesn't cast reason aside initially because because then you're just stuck in the original misknowing. And so it's, you know, it's sophisticated and complicated, and every scientist should be well-trained as a philosopher, mm -hmm. actually, which means they have to study Nagarjuna and, uh, and such people rather than only Plato and Wittgenstein and Richard Rorty. But the, Richard Rorty is reaching there, totally, but, but uh, not quite because of the materialism, uh, because that's a taboo. You know, that's like, a, that's like the Inquisitional. It keeps you out of the Inquisition mm -hmm. if, you, if you accept that as card-carrying, you know. And that's a mistake. That's imprisoning science. So science is all important. And, and even materialist science, what they are discovering, is very important. Nobody is saying it isn't. But then where are they going once they, once they get there, you know? Yeah. And also, I want to say about mind and life, the science people who learn about meditating are all important, even though, like my teacher interrupting me, if you don't develop some philosophical clarity about causality and relativity ahead of time, which automatically begins to erode the shell of self-absolutizing that surrounds your deep inner energy of good feeling, that is your health and your vitality, which those people all have, it enforces that shell too much. And so therefore, to just really only go for only one point and not back and forth and not do compassion and not do other things is maybe not so good. But also, even just doing even any of this most superficial level of mindfulness is good because they'll find their common sense. Mm. Because they're so, they are smart people, and so, so a little bit of calming their mind down, noticing what's going on within the mind, becoming a little bit able to not just do immediate things, charging ahead, you know? So the scientist and the mind and life job is no wonder His Holiness loves it so much. It is so important, and uh, I totally love it. So anyway, that's it. That's all well, I have to say. thank you so much. Thank you so much. Yeah. And I hope everybody reads, Wisdom is the Bliss, and realizing that wisdom is not mysticism. Wisdom is what scientists need, not, not just knowledge, but when knowledge gets really deep and experimental and experiential, it becomes wisdom. And they are capable and they must understand holistically how their knowledge relates to everything. And they must tell the people. And they, they, they can get up and speak their mind, you know, and don't be afraid. And uh, these are friendly fun facts. And, you know, my definition of a fun fact, I never heard of the expression of fun fact until my friend uh, Alan Hasenfeld told me. I have to give attribution. He is the founder of Hasbro Toy Company. Oh, yeah. And we were on a board of a different nonprofit, and we had a dinner where everybody had to come up with their fun fact. So his fun fact was that he is no longer CEO of his company. He is the executive chairman. And then he said, less people think that that's something really great. I want them to know my fun fact is 
that it's like presiding over a cemetery. Many people are below you, but no one is listening. <laughs> oh, that's great. So that's my fun fact. Those are my fun facts. Well, thank you so much, Bob. This has been really great. I appreciate you taking the time. All right, Randy. Thank you. This season of Mind and Life is supported by the Academy for the Love of Learning, dedicated to awakening the natural love of learning in people of all ages. Episodes are edited and produced by me and Phil Walker, and music on the show is from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal. Show notes and resources for this and other episodes can be found at podcast.mindandlife.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. And if something in this conversation sparked insight for you, let us know. You can send an email or voice memo to podcast at mindandlife.org. Mind and Life is a production of the Mind and Life Institute. Visit us at mindandlife.org, where you can learn more about how we bridge science and contemplative wisdom to foster insight and inspire action towards flourishing. If you value these conversations, please consider supporting the show. You can make a donation at mindandlife.org under support. Any amount is so appreciated, and it really helps us create this show. Thank you for listening.